with me. The duty which God requires of man is the obedience that comes from faith. Um, if you are new to Redeemer, and I know just mentioned that we have a mobile app that you can download, and on that app you'll notice on the front page you'll see um, digital hymnal right on the top. You click on that, it'll say weekly bulletin on the bottom of that, and you'll see July 21st, 2019. And if you click on that, it will have all the songs and all the responsive readings we've had. And it'll also have that Baptist catechism question. So if you're interested in looking at others, click on that link and you can go to that catechism. Also, I know some of y'all use this. Also, we put the links of the songs on, on the on the a digital hymnal, so that if you had heard a song you've never heard before, like maybe Cling to the Cross, Cling to the Crucified, you can click on that link and it will shoot you to a PDF. And so you can read it, you can read it to your kids, you can listen to these songs in your car. It's a great way to teach kids scripture and teach kids theology and doctrine. It's through music. So just want to encourage you with that. And a lot of you have downloaded the app. We have like 212 um, downloads of that app. And so so don't be the one who doesn't have it. A lot of people do have it, and so please be encouraged to, to, to use that. We have a sermons on there. If you miss a sermon, it's on there. Also, we have events and stuff that are on there as well. If you're curious about what's coming up here at the church, you can click on events and see what's going, coming down the pipe. We are still in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And I'll be honest with you. This is a very difficult chapter to understand, and so bear with me as I get a little scatterbrained. Um, realize that was basically my week when it came to this text, and um, so be, uh, just realize that. And so we read Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and I will read all 29 verses. Then you can kind of understand, if you have read already, how difficult this passage is. Starting in verse 1. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart, the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools, that it also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of all other things than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Verse 13. Consider the work of God. You can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. 
Be not overly righteous, do not make yourself too wise, why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool, why should you die before your time? Is it good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand? For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you, you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I say, I will be, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off, and deep, very deep, who can find it out. I turn my heart to know, and to search out, and to seek wisdom, and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly, and the foolishness that is in madness, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, by adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have, I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Verse 29. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but these have, they have sought out my schemes. Verse 8. In chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word, and it's difficult, and it's challenging, and it's sometimes hard to understand, Lord. But Lord, you ask us to read it, to trust it, to meditate on it, Lord, to pray over it. And you said that your spirit will guide us to understanding. Your spirit will bring conviction. Your spirit, Lord, will help us to understand your love and your goodness and your grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us do that this morning. Lord, I pray for myself, Lord, that you would give me understanding. I have a great example of the limits of wisdom, Lord, that your word sometimes on our own is hard to understand. But in the spirit, Lord, you bring to mind the things you want us to know. And I pray that you would do that this morning. Lord, I pray for those who are here who are sick or struggling with job issues or struggling with relationship issues. Lord, we pray for them. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you're... You would give them strength and guidance in all situations. Where we ask, Lord, for those who are not with us because they're traveling or sick or wherever they are, pray that you would bring them back to us next week. Where we pray for your wisdom. We pray, Lord, that you would guide this church. Where we pray for the neighborhoods around this church that we have interacted with, that we have invited to things, Lord. You know them. You know their hearts. You know every hair on their heads, Lord. And, Lord, it's not up to us to... To save them or redeem them, it's all based on your work and your power, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to share your great gospel with them. We love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, it's kind of common. I, I've titled this sermon, Aching Visionaries, Aching Visionaries. Um, and kind of the, the main idea, just going to present a main idea to help us here, is a wise person. Because that is the big question. I mean, in chapter 8, verse 1 says, who is wise, right? Who is wise? And so that the, the, really the major theme of this chapter is wisdom, right? How do we obtain wisdom? And, 
Some believe that maybe Solomon wrote this, and that would make sense in some ways because he talks about wisdom a lot. And we know that Solomon asked for wisdom from God, and God gave him wisdom. And so wisdom is a major theme in, um, in wisdom literature, obviously. Um, and so the main idea is a wise person mourns loss, considers God's works, and knows their own sinful heart. A wise person mourns loss, considers God's works, and knows their own sinful heart. And kind of this big idea is, is that reality breeds a vision for a better day. Reality, the cold, hard reality of life, breeds a vision for a better day. If, if we are in this mindset that we need to kind of live in an idealistic reality, that everything that we do and everything that we surround ourselves with is just positivity, well, that really isn't the real world, right? We cannot protect ourselves completely from reality or from that's life, right? We, we know that phrase when, when things happen at, out, out, kind of outside our control, things that we don't want in our lives, we say, well, life happens, right? We say that, right? And what we're saying is, is that you just got a taste of reality, right? If, if one of our children, especially, and they play sports, especially, and they lose, right? They lose a big game, and they're crying, and they're upset about it. What do we say? Well, you're a winner in my book. They didn't win. They lost, right? They may get a trophy. They may get an award, but they didn't lose the game. And life is full of losses, right? We cannot protect our children from loss. They will lose things. We will lose things. It's a part of life. It's a part of reality. Um, I want to talk about, kind of an introduction, a book that I read this week. It's called Lament for a Son by Nicholas Wolterstrauch. And Wolterstrauch uh, is a, I don't think he's a, as a professor at Yale anymore, but he taught at Yale Divinity School. And he talks about in this book about his son who passed away. His son died, Eric, his son died in 1983, the year that I was born. And his son was just graduated from college. He went off to Germany to work on his doctorate, his PhD, and he loved to climb mountains. And I want to just read the story. This isn't paid. Really matter. Um, paid. Like read. Like you need to turn to your page in the book, right? That's kind of my mindset. Um, but this is what. This is the story of what happened. He said, "This is this is Nicholas. This is the father, and his son is named Eric." He said, "The call came in at three thirty on that Sunday afternoon, a bright Sunday day. We had just been a, sent a younger brother off to the plane to be with his son Eric for the summer." Mr. Wardoff, Wardstrike, yes. Is this Eric's father? Yes. Mr. Wardstrike, I must give you some bad news. Yes. Eric, his son, has been climbing in the mountains and has had an accident. Yes. Eric has had a serious accident. Yes. Mr. Wardstrike, I must tell you, Eric is dead. Mr. Wardstrike, are you there? You must come at once, Mr. Wardstrike. Eric is dead. For three seconds, I felt a peace of resignation, arms extended, limbs, son in hand, peacefully offering him to someone, someone. Then the pain, cold, burning pain. He was like, he was like all children, always quick and bright. He entered college as a natural merit scholar, excellent at science and math. He spent his college summers in computer programming. Eventually, he decided to go into art history rather than science, and there he felt he touched humanity. He was a fine artist, himself, an accomplished potter, knowledgeable in music, good in performance. He was a hard worker, not disposed to waste his time. 
perhaps too much so, too little inclined to savor, even intolerate inter interruptions, too much oriented towards the goal, his goals, not inclined enough to humor. He gave up pottering because he didn't fit into his plans. Still, he knew delight. He was venturesome, traveling on his own throughout much of the world, never shrinking from a challenge or turning aside from the exploration of fresh, fresh terrain, inclined to overestimate his physical skills and strength. And at 10, he almost drowned, not wanting to admit that he could barely swim. He lived intensively. It was a uh, father talking about his son who passed away. And the whole book is basically this father dealing with that loss and just talking about this boy in his life that will never be filled, right? I mean, to say, well, yeah, it'll be filled. Like, you know, you just got to find peace with him. He's like, I'm never going to be able to replace my dead son, right? This one son, Eric, and his personality and his characteristics and what he was passionate about, that will never be replaced. And he talks about that aching in his heart, and he talks about this, this, the grief and the sadness that happened that he lost his son. And this reminded me of what happened just recently when a father's son passed away at USI because the son was left in the car. And I know Will Hawkins knows the father who was at the funeral. But he laments his son. Like, he can't replace his son. His son will never come back. Even if he had another son, he's never going to be replaced. That son in his life and dealing with the grief and the pain and the lament that his son is now dead. The pain that brings, and that is reality, that death is in the world. He even says, Nicholas, the, the father says, I didn't know how much I loved him until he was gone. What is wisdom? Is wisdom the ability to protect ourselves from pain, to surround ourselves with security so that we've never experienced loss of money, job, relationships, etc.? Who is the wise? What does it mean to be wise? An issue I see in American Christianity today is the overwhelming literature, music, and teaching that is selling the idea that your self-esteem is essential to your spiritual growth. Ideas like you're an overcomer. Ideas like every day is a Friday. Ideas like happiness is important, your happiness is important to God. Ideas like living your best life now. Ideas like think better, live better. Ideas like become a better you. A lot of those are Joel Osteen titles. <laughs> that is a problem, right? But what is it telling you to do? That your problem is not your sin. Your problem is that you're a fallen, simple creature in a fallen world. The problem is, is that you just need to increase your self-esteem. You need to think more positively. As if the world works under certain laws, that if you're a Christian, you're entitled to these blessings here and now. All you need is some positive thinking. And the idea that those who are positive thinkers are the wise, right? Joel Olstein is a wise person who teaches those who are seeking wisdom, right? Or any other preacher or teacher that kind of sells this positive thinking theology and says that I am the wise person who will show you the way to wisdom. But I don't think that's wisdom. They're the ones that are the overcomers, right? They're the spiritual winners. Therefore, thousands of people go every Sunday or watch online to people who will help them think positive and obtain those blessings. This is a quote from Kate Bowler, who did a huge uh, study on the history of prosperity gospel. She wrote a book called Everything Happens for a Reason. She said the prosperity gospel is a very simple way of explaining why life as it is must be inherently just. 
As it's told, God established a set of principles that keep the world in order. Just as there are natural laws of gravity and thermodynamics, there are spiritual laws that steer the courses of lives and ensure that good things really do happen to good people. The law of confession activates the power of positive thoughts, drawing out desires out of the heavens into reality. The law of agreement allows two or more people to harness their spiritual cor corporately to create an answer to prayer. The law of tithes supernaturally multiplies an offering of 10% growth income given to the church, often with a guaranteed tenfold or hundredfold return. The number of these spiritual laws depend on who is preaching. There are the, for the law of first fruits, the law of seed faith, the entire laws of life book series by the televangelists advertised to people that if you follow these laws, you will get the cause and effect. So in a sense, it's a cause and effect world, right? That the spiritual world looks at a cause and effect world. If you do this, the effects will be this. If you um, have positive thinking, it will produce positive results. Those who teach these laws are wise, right? These are the ones that are the wise people. They teach these laws. They teach these cause and effects laws. And they're the ones to be followed. And they're the ones to be listened to. And if you follow these laws, you'll be wise. Yet, what do we do with pain? What do we do with loss? When our son dies and he falls off a mountain, or we mistakenly leave him in the car and he dies, what do we do? What positive thinking is going to replace our son? What positive thinking is going to make us feel better about that. How do we find understanding through pain? What is the reason for my pain? And does God desire for me to have his high self-esteem? Is that his will for you and me? To have a high self-esteem. Is that his will for us? If that is his will for us, then why does he put us in places of pain? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, I will apply all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by, not, by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. This is in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you do not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul's talking about the issue of pride and boasting. Right? He even uses the word puffed up. Right? It's an odd word. It's not pride. It's a word that says you're inflated. You're, you're inflated with, with ego. Your ego is inflated. Pride and boasting in the self is viewed negatively by God. So therefore, high self-esteem or puffing yourself up with all this positivity so that you say, well, look at my life. Look how positive my life is. Look how I'm thinking better and how my life is better is an issue of pride. And Paul is calling that out. Too high view of yourself was the root of all evil before the 20th century, right? The, the view was is that parents tried to push their kids down, not raise their kids up. That they tried to push them because they thought low self-esteem is the answer to problems. It, but now we've come to a point where the issues with today is that the root of all evil is low view of self. The reason why this person committed a crime is their self-esteem was too low. They didn't receive the support and encouragement that they needed. And some of it that is true, but this change in ideas of positivity and positive thinking and raising your self-esteem and puffing you up with pride is not something that the Bible speaks highly of. Paul in here in 1 Corinthians warns the church in Corinth against overinflating your ego. Why? An overinflated ego is empty 
That's why it's full there, right? It's empty. It's painful, right? You, when, you, when you're puffed up with, with pride, your pride is easily damaged. Your pride is also busy. Your ego is busy. You're constantly trying to fill your ego, to inflate your ego, to continue boasting in your ego, and that is a busy job. It's also fragile. It's easily deflated. So therefore, it always is constantly having to be inflated, constantly. So always being surrounded by positivity and being told things that make us feel good. The wise person is not someone who projects this beautiful and self-worth wisdom. Jesus did, not, Jesus did not come to make you like yourself more. He came to make you holy, and holiness is manufactured through pain, not positive thinking. You think of Moses and Joseph, right? Moses and Joseph, two major figures in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis and Exodus, what it, how, what it, how did God build them as people? He didn't build them through positive thinking, did he? He put Joseph in jail and then was falsely accused of rape. This is how he builds this character. Moses is someone who is constantly uh, having to deal with the people of Israel. He is, he is uh, um, piking. They go through the wilderness for 40 years. And then Moses is not even allowed into the promised land. This is how God builds the character of Moses through pain. Through suffering. So the big idea again is reality. Hard, cold reality breeds a vision for a better day. The preacher here in chapter 7 is expressing the importance of wisdom over foolishness, but wisdom is not gained in the library. It's not gained in an academic school. Wisdom is gained in reality, in cold, hard life. Wisdom is received through hardship and adversity. Wisdom isn't gained by numbing the pain with parties, pleasures, and substances, but embracing that pain. And that's what he gets at here. Like he says, the fool is the one who is in the house of laughter. Why? Because he's numbing reality. He is trying to escape reality. Wisdom, or the wise, is the one who embraces reality and understands God in the reality. So point number one, these are all quotes from Lament from a son. Lament of a son. I didn't know how much I loved him until he was gone. I didn't know how much I loved him until he was gone. Uh, the writer here, the, the preacher, the teacher, he says here in verse 1, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Kind of the, the, the first phrase there is just to kind of support and build up the second phrase. And so the rest of this kind of section is talking about death. Where the, where the preacher is saying that death, and better than birth. And that just, that blows your mind, right? Like, how could that be true, right? If you go to a hospital and you see a family celebrating the birth of a child, there, how could that be worse than a funeral? That doesn't make any sense, right? That makes the passage so difficult because that doesn't really make sense. What is the writer trying to tell us? What does he want us to understand? about wisdom. And what he's saying is this life is limited by death. Right? We, we understand this life is limited, but there's not a limitless amount of life given on the earth. That's earth. People live and they die and life is limited. Death teaches us that we will not be forever young, as the song goes. Old age and soon death will be everyone's fate. Right? And I did not do it. I did not take a photo of myself to show how old I would be. 
uh, just probably look at my grandfather or my father and see how old I, what I would look like when I when I get older, right? Um, but everyone was doing this, right? They were taking photos of them. They were taking uh, photos of themselves that with that face app, and it showed them older. That it, it was interesting that we, people were doing that this week because that is trying to show us that we will never be forever young. That death will come for us. That old age will come for us. You know, those who are who are, who are Catholic, but um, who celebrate Ash Wednesday. The purpose of Ash Wednesday is to remember your dust, and to dust you shall return. That we have this inner brokenness, that we have this inner poverty, that death rips people from love. That a void is created by death. That people, a person cannot be replaced. We can't go out and get another just like the one we have lost, right? We can't replace people that have been lost. They are lost, and they will never be replaced. Death rips love away, doesn't it? One person that we love is then ripped away from us. The world is emptier. That person is gone, and only a hole remains, a void, a gap, never to be filled. The ache of loss, that loved ones are lost. This inability of the one who has died to experience some of the joys of life, there's loss that happens in death. And what the teacher is saying is that the coffin is the great teacher, not the birth room. The birth room is not a great teacher because all there is is possibility. All there is is, is potential. All there is is opportunities in the child. And in death, there's a finality to it, right? Things have ended. And we have to reflect on the life. There's lessons to be learned. The inability to... There's, there's how death teaches us something. Death uh, teaches us that when we see the coffin, we start to ask the question... How was that person's life? How did they live? Were they someone who loved Jesus? Were they someone who loved people? Were they a person who loved the Cardinals and their lazy boy? Are they a person who really didn't love anything or anyone very much apart from themselves? Death makes us ask those questions, doesn't it? It makes us ask those questions. How did they live? And what does the writer say here in verse 2? He says, the living will lay it to heart. The living will lay it to heart. Everything comes into focus. Why, uh, this idea that life isn't worth living. Why? What will they say about me when I die? What is really important in life takes on more significance. Death will teach us if we stop to listen. If we stop to listen, death will teach us a lesson. It will say, come in, stay a while, have a seat, stop trying to escape the pain, and think for a moment. Reflect for a moment. Hence why the writer says in verse 3, a house of mourning is better than a house of feasting. Death invites you to be a person of death, not a person of superficiality, but a person of death. You don't fill your life with laughter and it's to escape the pains of the world. You feel the pain, you feel the regrets, you come to know what is important in life when you look at the call. When you look into the hole. You feel the pain. You feel the regret. What do I do with this regret? What do I do with my regret that I do not warn him more often and more firmly of the dangers of climbing? When the person is living, we can make amends. We can say we're sorry. For our pride is not too large, too shallow. can change our ways. If our projects are not loved more than the other person, when the person is dead, what do we do with our regrets? If that's what we ask ourselves when we look at the coffin, that I spend too much time at work, did I spend too much time on my personal projects? Did I spend too much time making money? Did I spend too much time gaining the materials of the world? Or 
did I care about this person? Did I love them? Did I cherish time with them? Did I take opportunities to be with them and to learn from them? You ask those questions when you live in college, don't you? The house of the wise, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The house of mourning is a place where love is lost, isn't it? You don't, you're not in pain and suffering when someone is lost if you don't love them. When we love people, suffering will happen. Pain will happen. This father that I read to you loved his son. What was the, the result of his death? It caused him pain because he loved him. He loved him. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's saying, Jesus said he cheers those who mourn. He cheers for the tears. He calls us to open ourselves to a wound of the world. What does Jesus say? I read it to the kid. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What happens when we love our neighbors? That when they go through suffering, we suffer. If you live your life opposed to loving people, if you stay and you only focus on yourself, you will have a life of no mourning, and your life will not be blessed. Jesus is saying that when we mourn people, when we are sad for them, when we, when we care for them, when we suffer with them, when they are lost, we are in pain and we suffer, it's because it's showing that we love people. And that is a good thing. The Stoics talked about disengaging yourself. You know, don't love people. Disengage yourself from the world. But God's word commands us to engage the world, to make friends that we care about, to love people, people that are imperfect, that are sinful, that are broken. One of my best friends is someone that he keeps on asking me, why are you friends with me? And this is, and some of you have already met him. His name is Will Goble. He's come here once. And his father just passed away, and I went and spent some time with him, and he cried, and blah, blah, blah. And I told him, hey, you've got to embrace the pain, man. You can't numb it with alcohol. You can't numb it with drugs. You just have to embrace the pain because you loved your father. But when we enter into the world and we love those who maybe not our family and not our blood, and we just love people, we will enter into their pain. We will enter into their suffering. And that is a good thing. And death teaches us that. Christ's love for us leads us to his own suffering on the cross. We mourn the absence of God's new day, the unrealized realm of God, that when we see hurting and oppressed people, shamed and broken people, tired and weary people, unbelieving and defiant people, dying people, we see them. We recognize a better day will come. The God's room of peace and ache for God's new day will come. The house of mirth is a place where a person runs away from people to love because they fear the pain of loss. Their relationships are superficial. They fill their lives with make-believe. There is no blessing there. There is no joy there. Wisdom is good. Wisdom is better than money. It's better than uh, getting what we want. It's better than nostalgia, which he talks about here. Longing for the past. Escaping for a better day. Perfection and beauty that have actually not ever happened. We long for a better future. We long for heaven. And when we are in pain and we are in suffering with other people, we recognize a better day to come. When we are sad because of the loss and death, we're recognizing that death is not the original plan of God. And that there will be a better day when there will be no death and no tears. The point number two is God has decided that it was time for him to come home. God had decided that it was time for him to come home. That's a difficult truth, right? Especially if your son's young. If he's a child, or he's an adult, but he's a young adult, and he passes away. A father and a mother are not supposed to bury their son or their daughter, right? 
there's the daughter who's so supposed to bury the father, the mother. But why does God allow this to happen? Right? That's the question. Why? Why does God allow this to happen? What is the reason why this happened? He, he talks about in the book, The Men of the Sun, that as if God shook the mountain and caused his son to fall. He couldn't get that thought out of his mind that God shook the mountain and caused him to fall. Why would God allow his son to fall and die? That's what he's asking. Why would God allow his father to leave his son in the car? Why would he allow this to happen? And the writer here says he considers the work of God, verse 13. Wisdom cannot straighten what is crooked. God's will is unchangeable. If those who prosper and those who deal with an adversity, it's all under the control of God. You have no control over their arrival into your life. The writer says in verse 15, In my vain life I've seen everything. Righteous who perish and the wicked prosper. Fair would mean that life rewarded the good and punished the bad. That's not what happens. That we don't live in a, in a world of fairness. There is no law of fair. That's not how the world is. It is. Reality is, is that the world is unfair. The righteous perish. The, right, the righteous perish. The wicked are prosperous. And the writer here, the teacher, is like, I don't understand why this is so. We have this idea that vision of success is propelled by hard work and determination. This show and tell, right? See my big house. See how prosperous I am. See how God's blessed me. Look at my new car that I've gotten. See, I'm showing and telling you how blessed I am by God. God must like me. But why can't we just sit in the good news of Christ? That Christ has saved us from our sins and nothing else truly matters. And we just sat there in that center, in that core, that Jesus is all that we need, then we have no need to show why we are prospering or why we're in adversity, because God does what he does based off his will. Life is not fair. I was reading an article in the newspaper this morning, last yesterday, and it was about a, a book that was written about the history of um, um, Eastern Europe during World War II, especially about children who suffered by the Germans. And the book is called Last Witness, and it talks about the history of children who watched their children, their parents be murdered by the Germans, by the Nazis. And the, the children seeing the suffering and seeing this pain, those kids didn't deserve that. What theology or philosophy is going to argue that these children did something before they were born to deserve that treatment? There is no philosophy or theology that makes sense to that. The only answer is, is that God does what he does. There is no, I'm the master of my own faith. I'm the captain of my own soul. You know, I don't know if you know this, but yesterday we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon, right? Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, 1969. Some of y'all may not believe that it actually happened. Uh, I think you're a little crazy, but that's okay. God loves you, and we can argue about that some other time. Um, but I'm going to hold the fact that they did walk on the moon, okay? Uh, but if you know about the story of Apollo 1, right, Gus Grissom was actually supposed to, land, supposed to walk on the moon, and Neil Armstrong was his replacement. Gus Grissom died in Apollo 1. The, the, they were on the ground, and they were testing communication, and they had pure oxygen being pumped into the spacecraft, and there was a spark, and they blew up. They all died. Why did that happen? Why did Gus Grissom die and Neil Armstrong have to walk on the moon? Because God willed it. That's the only answer. 
We're addicted to self-rule. We want to have control. Control is a drug. We're all hooked. Whether or not we believe the prosperity gospel's assurance that we are going to be masters of the future with our own words and our own attitudes, the only answer to this, we, are, we can't understand why joy or, or adversity comes into our lives. Surrender is not victorious. Surrender is seen as not a virtue in most of our worlds. The idea of surrendering to God's will is seen as giving up. However, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him or only choices surrender. All American culture and pop psychology scream against that. Never give up on your dreams. Just keep knocking. That door's about to open. Think positively. Self-improvement guaranteed. And all we're doing is fighting reality. We're fighting reality. We're not surrendering to reality. And the reality is, is that God is in control. And when we, a wise person considers the work of God and surrenders themselves to God by doing that, they fulfill God's will in their life. A knowledge of ourselves that's found when we surrender our will to God's will, there wisdom lies. Did you catch that? Wisdom does not lie in fighting and in positive thinking. Wisdom lies with knowledge of ourselves that's found when we surrender to God's will. Not fight it. That's the fool. The wise person surrenders to the will of God. The last point, instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. He starts off in verse 20, kind of changing gears a little bit. He says, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. This is verse 22. He, he observes the world. And he's, he's, he's looking for wisdom. He's, he's trying to understand wisdom. And he says in verse 23 that wisdom is far from him. He can't understand why God does what he does. Why is the world the way that it is? We are called to surrender. We don't know truly what God's plan is for our lives. We're called to surrender to his will, but that doesn't mean that we totally understand what his plan is for our lives. We don't understand all the different ways that God will mold us as a person. Philippians 1.6, God will complete his work in you. The work to conform you to the image of his son to present you holy and blameless. That is his overall will for your life. But you don't know what means in particular the Holy Spirit will use to sanctify you. You have no idea what life situations that God will put you in. Joyful situation, situation of adversity. There's no law or formula that can be used to guarantee anything. Security is not available to us. The wisdom is far off. This idea that you can surround yourself with enough insurance and enough protection and enough security to keep yourself from pain and suffering is an illusion. It's just not true. It's not true. There's not enough wisdom that you can gain in the world that you can somehow be able to calculate everything that may happen to you to protect yourself from it. The writer's saying that wisdom is far away. It's deep. It's away. I can't obtain all of it. Kind of ends this chapter, verse 29. See this alone I found that so he, he's searching the world, like he wants to understand wisdom, wants to understand foolishness, and he searches the world, and what does he find? This alone I found, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Is that the world is full of simpleness in human hearts. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. They're deliberate in their sin. 
it's universal. It says all, and it's multi-formed, right? They're seeking out schemes to sin and disobey God. This is reality, that humans sin against humans, humans sin alone, they sin against God. This is a constant activity of man. We cannot straighten what is crooked. Only God can straighten what is crooked. It's crooked. There's no way of straightening the hearts of man. They are sinful. We are easily uh, deceived. We are easily being snares to others. And only God can overcome sin and death. Only God can overcome sin and death. He's the only one that can straighten our crooked hearts. We think this idea that performance will lead to our verdict, right? If we just do enough things, if we accomplish enough things, if we earn enough honor, if we're wise enough, smart enough, rich enough, that we'll somehow get into heaven, we'll be okay with God. And it's just not true. You are crooked. You cannot straighten yourself. No positive thinking, no self, uh, self-betterment will accomplish this. You have a crooked heart. Your, your heart is prone to wonder. Your heart is prone to sinfulness, and God is the only one who brings a solution to that performance of Christ leads to the great verdict. Hard work and determination and positive thinking and high self-esteem lead to the same verdict. You're a sinner. Your heart is snares and nets. You see, you've got many schemes. You're crooked, and only God can straighten you. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you memorize. At least the same verdict. Same verdict. God is the one that straightens you through death and suffering of his son so that you may have life and not defined by what you do, but by what you trust. By what you trust. You do not need to be filled with encouraging positive music. You don't need to be filled with positive encouraging thoughts or phrases, or themes. You need to understand that positivity is not the answer to your life, but it's the trust in Christ. That's the answer. And I think what Paul is trying to tell you, I read at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 4, what Paul is wanting to tell you is stop thinking about yourself so much. Stop focusing on yourself too much. What does Paul say here in 1 Corinthians 4? He says, that I don't have to prove myself to anyone. I don't have to prove myself to you. I don't have to prove myself to the world. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who judges me, so therefore, I don't have to think about myself anymore. I don't have to prove myself to anyone. There's a quote by Madonna, and she talks about all of her accomplishments, and she says that that she's always concerned that, that people will think she's not talented enough. And so she's always trying to prove to the world that she is talented, that she's a good entertainer. And this is a constant dread on her. Every time she does well, it only brings her back to the ground that she needs to be filled with confidence and positivity because she feels like she is going to be judged by people. And this world continues to go round and round and round that we have to prove ourselves to anybody. And Paul is saying, if you have Christ, you have nothing to prove to anyone. Your conscience is clear. You don't have to be full of pride. You don't have to be full of positive thinking. You have Christ. And you don't have to focus on yourself. You don't have to focus on yourself. How can we love others? How can we consider God's work in our lives? How can we recognize our simple hearts if we are always trying to prove ourselves 
to fill our egos with accomplishments, honors, deeds, and positivity that will be the constant judge on our lives. The teacher teaches us that death is painful and insightful. Life is mixed with joy and adversity. The human heart is sinful. The wise person stops trying to define their life by their own self-worth, but instead focuses their eyes on Christ Jesus, who overcame and made straight their crooked and sinful heart through his own death and suffering. Stop trying to find yourself in what people think about you. Stop trying to define yourself worth about the positivity that the people give you. All the positive, positive that you need is that Christ Jesus loves you and died for you on the cross. Amen. That's all that you need. And know how he looks at you? You know what God said to Jesus when he was baptized? My beloved son whom I love. That's exactly how God thinks of you. You are my beloved son and daughter, and I love you. And there's no one that needs to tell you anything to build your self-worth. You are beautiful. I love you. You don't need the world to tell you you're beautiful and that you have self-worth. Because Christ Jesus thinks that. God thinks that. And so when we're in pain, when we're in suffering, when we're going through adversity, when we recognize that our hearts are, are broken and we are sinful, we can immediately put our focus on Christ. Immediately. And not try to, to manufacture joy or manufacture happiness. But our happiness is rooted in Christ. It's deeper than that. Much deeper. Because it's his, his performance on the cross, you no longer are judged by your own performance. His performance justifies you. God judges you as righteous. The verdict of your life is, he or she is my beloved son or daughter. Jim. And that is a wise person. A wise person mourns loss because they love people. A wise person considers the works of God in his life. And recognizes that God is in control and they are not. And a wise person knows that they are crooked. That they have a sinful heart. And that they are completely justified by Christ Jesus alone. And not by the reward. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for your truth. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for speaking through your word. Some may ask, why do we not do certain topical sermons or sermons about movie series and things like that? Because your word is sufficient for us. Lord, we're not smart enough or wise enough, Lord, to be able to persuade people of the, of the wickedness of their heart and their need for Christ on our own. Only the Bible can. And when I pray, Lord, that you would help people to see the truth in your word. And they would see, and they would seek wisdom, as Solomon did, but they would realize that wisdom is not in positive thinking, it's not in having their best life now, but why wisdom is understanding that the world is broken. And that death is in the world. And when we mourn those that we love, we recognize that death is a consequence of sin. And we look for a better day. We're visionaries who look for a better day. And we love people and we pursue people and we share the gospel with people because we want people to recognize a better day. We want people to understand that, Lord, that you're in control of all things and to find depth and understanding in what you do. Lord, help people understand that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Lord, we love you and we pray to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
we're going to take a communion. Sean, why don't you go up? And uh, didn't want you to go as well. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And the way that we do this here is that if you're a follower of Christ,